0: This is Everyday Wellness, a podcast dedicated to helping you achieve your health and wellness goals and provide practical strategies that you can use in your real life. And now, here is your host, nurse practitioner Cynthia Thurlow. Today, this is a treat. I have Vinnie Torterich, who is among the very first that talked about the benefits of low carb diets and ketogenic diets on the internet. He began his Fitness Confidential podcast nearly 10 years ago, and the show has produced well over 1,700 episodes and amasses over 1 million downloads per month, which is incredible. Then he published his book, Fitness Confidential, in the year following the launch of his podcast, and it instantly became a bestseller and continues to sell well on Amazon and Audible. And in 2019, he wrote, produced, and starred, in Fat, a documentary which rose to number one in several categories across iTunes. And ranked incredibly well on Amazon and Amazon Prime. It is currently the best-selling movie ever released by Gravitas Ventures. And he's teamed up again for a sequel, which I can't wait to see, entitled Fat, A Documentary 2, which is now available for pre-sale on iTunes and will be released worldwide in the first week of January 2021. It's such a pleasure to have you this morning. And so, you know, I find your journey absolutely fascinating. And I don't make assumptions that necessarily everyone that's listening... But kind of connecting the dots between, you know, going to school in Tulane and being in New Orleans and then making your way to California and then, you know, connecting the dots to actually creating this documentary, kind of walk us through how that happened. Because I think that it makes sense to me because I have done my research, but I find it fascinating because, you know, when we look back on our lives and at the time You may not understand why your life takes a particular direction, but it all makes sense when you look back on it kind of retrospectively. Kind of walk us through how you went from being an exercise physiology student in New Orleans to ending up in California and now, you know, really being a major influencer in the low-carb keto zone of genius.
1: Yeah, you know, it's strange. Adam Carolla and Dr. Drew were talking one day and without me in the room, I heard the show later. They said, why is it that some guy that grew up on the bayou had to come along and tell us all that we were doing something wrong? And I looked around and went, yeah, why is that? You know, how did, I didn't figure out anything, but why did I stumble upon any of it? How did that happen? And when you think about it, that was the genesis for the book, Fitness Confidential. I didn't want to write it at all. You know, most people want to write a book. I did not want to write a book. I was the the polar opposite. And the reason being is I looked around and went, there's too many fitness books out there. There's too much going on. But my good friend, Dean Laurie, who's well known for a lot of sitcoms like my wife and kids, and he's one of the brains behind Arrested Development and that whole thing in Hollywood. He kept saying, you have a book in you. You need to write this book. You've been doing this in Hollywood with these celebrities for all these years. You need to put it out there. And my answer was always the same. Why would I tell my secrets to the rest of the world? I use this to trade on. I'm a personal trainer who gets massive amounts of weight off of people in Hollywood or put muscle on people in Hollywood. Why would I go give that away to the whole world? I won't be special anymore. Well, in 2007, I had a really mean round of cancer, went through my body. I had leukemia. And then I was sitting with Dean. I wasn't even cleared of leukemia yet. It was early 2008. And he started yelling at me again. It's like, you almost died. So any of these secrets that you've been using on, uh, he calls them our people, the the actors and everyone in Hollywood. He goes, you almost took that with you. You Why don't you just write the book? And about, he complained about two years. And finally I said, okay, I'll start writing notes. And 45,000 worth of notes later, Dean convinced me to sit down and turn those notes into the book. Now, the reason I even bring any of that up, Cynthia, is because all of it started when I was eight years old. It didn't just start when I got to Tulane. It started because, you know, I had a speech impediment because of an ear issue I couldn't really hear. And I was goofed on and I had no friends. And there was a guy down the street, this Italian guy, friends of the family, and he worked out in his garage. And he accepted me in. And he treated me, this was a guy that was my parents' age. Mm-hmm. His name was Joe Bonadonna. He's no longer with us. And he accepted me like any other person. He didn't goof on my speech impediment. And he wouldn't let me do anything that I couldn't do. So in other words, I can do push-ups, because that's what a kid would do. Or I could do pull-ups. You could pull up your own weight. But he wouldn't let me lift heavy weights. Boy, I was there every day. I never missed. And I marveled at this guy. You know, it was just unbelievable to me. And that was the beginning of me falling in love with the human body. Remember, now, you might be just old enough. I know you're younger than me. Do you remember the Encyclopedia Britannica?
0: I do. We had it.
1: <laughs> remember when people had those on the show? Yes. Well, I would go and look at the one where you would see the human body and because I wanted to see what was underneath it. I was just infinitely curious about the nervous system and and the cardiovascular system. And I was reading about this stuff as a young guy. Uh When I got a football scholarship to go play at Tulane, they said, well, what do you want to do? And I went, what do you have in the health field? And they said, well, do you want to become a doctor? And I said, no, I'm not smart enough. I can't be a doctor. I'm an idiot. But they said, well, we can take these courses. We don't know what it's going to add up to, but go right ahead. And that was the beginning of me getting into health and fitness, exercise, physiology, nutrition, all of it at Tulane, because any course that came along, I took. If it was biology, I was in there. I was doing it all. And then at some point, I had to declare a major. You can't declare a major in that. So, you know, it was, well, what can I do with all this? So I got a secondary education degree on top of everything else in order to actually be able to go out and get a job because you can't go out and get a job and go, Hey, I know a lot about the liver." (laughs) So I don't know if that, that was a long winded way of saying that's how this whole thing began, you know, just being infinitely curious about the body and how it works.
0: But isn't that so important? I always remind my children who, of course, they think my husband and I are really old, that intellectual curiosity is what kind of guides the direction your life goes. And for many of us, I would say for many of us that are listening, you know, we may still be in the lane that we started in, you know, after high school or after college. And for me, I was always kind of pushing the envelope a bit. And so where did you get to a point where, you know, you really started to think beyond kind of the conventional wisdom, you know, obviously you were way ahead of the curve with your perspective on hormones and macros And, you know, really looking at the things that are super inflammatory in the body. And I loved when I was doing my research, you know, listening to you talk about when you were hired to be on set or to get a starlet ready or to get an actor ready for a role and, you know, kind of the the things you had to do, which it was like moving heaven and earth to get people to change their diet and to, you know, commit to an exercise program. But where did you start to kind of change your philosophy or where did you see things were really not aligning because we obviously and this is a segue into your movie but we got to a point 50 plus 60 plus years ago where we really got off course as a nation and as a philosophy on nutrition and so when you kind of entered the scene in the 80s and you're watching this is when this you know the kind of bastardization of fats was happening and you know all of a sudden our, our diets were shifting radically and really to our detriment not to our benefit
1: it was right around 1983 84 I can't put an exact date on it, but my diet changed drastically because around that time, you know, I was always built, you know, like a football player. I was a middle linebacker. I I weighed 225 pounds and my waist was maybe 30 inches. Mm So think about that. I'm only six feet tall. I was built almost like a bodybuilder, you know, and never took any steroids or any drugs. That was all done through a lot of weightlifting, a lot of eggs and a lot of red meat. And when you're on scholarship and you're on the training table, there's tons of eggs, tons of red meat, tons of fish. It's you know Caligula's den of eating. You know It's just nonstop protein, fat, animal protein. Well, as soon as I was not on the team anymore, I was still working out like an animal, still had 18 and a half, 19 inch biceps. My quads were still over 30 inches because I was still working out. I was still in the gym. I never left the gym, but my waist wasn't 30 inches anymore. And it wasn't 33 inches or even 36. It was 38. And I didn't really notice it happening because I'm not a mirror guy. You know, I would watch myself do squats in a mirror because you want to make sure you're going out, but I wouldn't come home and look in the mirror. I'm just not that guy. And this girl I was seeing in college, Janie, she noticed that I was gaining weight and she just mentioned it one day, you know, as a matter of fact, I mentioned it first, I mentioned to Janie that my Levi's were shrinking in the dryer and she did what you're doing right now. She started laughing and she said, sweetie, your Levi's aren't shrinking. You're getting fat. I never heard that term before. It just didn't occur to me. So that night I looked in the mirror and sure enough, there was a gut. You know, I still had the big biceps, the big chest, the big legs, but there was a gut. And I noticed that my muscles were smoother. They weren't ripped the way they used to be. And the first thing I did was I went out to the drugstore and there was a newsstand. That was long before any kind of social media. And I bought every magazine on the newsstand. And they were all geared at women, Mm -hmm. every one of them. How to lose weight overnight, six pack abs by next week. You know, your butt will be as taut as a bowling ball by (laughs) noon tomorrow you know, all of this stuff. So I bought all of these things and I came home and they all said the same thing, you know, cut out red meat, low fat drink tab. Remember tab? Oh
0: God, my grandmother
1: loved it. And it was geared to women. They painted the can pink and it was all this different stuff. And I'm looking at it going, wait, they're telling people to eat bread and pasta to lose weight. My grandmother from Italy with a sixth grade education knew that that didn't work. This can't possibly work. But I also started looking at my own diet. And the one thing that had shifted, wasn't getting as many eggs, although I was affording myself a few eggs for breakfast. I certainly wasn't eating any red meat because I couldn't afford it. Mm-hmm. I was still living in college. I was living on ramen noodles. I was living on barilla pasta, mm-hmm. you know, and I would buy ragu to throw on it. But, you know, I was fording what I could afford, which was nothing, It was nothing but starch and carbs. In no time, while I was still working out, I got fat. And then I had magazines telling me that the way I'm going to get thin again is to do more of what I was doing. And all I had to do was look back six months and go, okay, when I was eating the high fat, the high protein, the meat, the eggs, the fish, the dairy, all the things they're telling me not to eat, I was built like Vince Gironda. Now I look like the Michelin man. So all I have to do is reverse what I was doing before, and I'll go back to where I was before. And by the way, you know, you said I was one of the early guys on the internet doing this. Okay, yeah, I was on the internet. But you got to remember, Atkins was already around Mm -hmm. back in the late 70s. And I deferred to that and looked back at that. And of course, everybody would go, well, you know, Atkins, you'll look good. You'll be a really good looking corpse. And I had no reason not to believe that because everything I had learned in college said, yeah, you can lose weight on this diet, but it will kill you. So that was the beginning days of me starting to question everything that was around me.
0: I think it's really important. I know for myself, I take great pride in the fact that I started to pivot from my kind of traditional allopathic Western medicine approach because I was in cardiology and much to your point you know, I had these patients who already had disease. They already had blockages and uh, had stents or bypass surgery or were diabetics and/or they had all of the above. And it was literally, we were just writing prescriptions. I mean, we walked through the hospital and it was like everyone was on insulin because nearly everyone was an undiagnosed diabetic. And in the hospital, the fastest way to control blood sugar is with insulin injections. And so I finally got to a point where I kept saying, there has to be more to this than just writing prescriptions. And as much support as I got from my peers, they all thought I was nuts when I kept saying, it all starts with food. We are so far off. We're telling our patients to avoid bacon, to avoid eggs, to avoid red meat, to you know have these highly processed starchy foods and to eat consume many servings of them. And you really think about most allopathic healthcare providers get little to no education on nutrition and the education you're given is very carbohydrate focused with minimal fats and certainly not the high quality fats that you and I embrace and advocate for. And so you start to, if you follow the curve and for anyone that's watched Vinny's movie fat, you get a really nice kind of timeline on when this started. And so, you know, certain names get thrown around Ansel Keys, but it actually started way before then. And so it's been this 150 years of Us getting so off course. And I think it's important that there are people out there that are challenging the status quo. And I'm sure for you, you know, working in Hollywood and the mindset, I'm sure has been calories in calories out, you know, Seco. it's all about Seco. It's all about, we have to, you know, you see calories on a food item and you just assume, okay, I just have to go run 20 miles to work off what I just ate. And it's so much more complicated than that. Now, did you grow up in a family where, I would imagine, you know, good Italian parents, much like my own, we were way ahead of the curve eating organ meat and, you know, crunchy foods. Like we had whole grain bread that my mom would make. And my mom was very focused on protein and vegetables with every meal. Were your parents, did they kind of, did they embrace the kind of traditional American, standard American diet philosophy, or were your parents putting, you know, more nutritious, you know, less processed foods on the table. And yet that's the environment that you grew up in.
1: It was a weird environment for me. My family, not just my nucleus family, but the whole Italian clan, they called, you know, we lived on a, about a five-mile stretch on Bayou Lafouche and it's mostly Cajun country, but you have these enclaves of Italians every now and again, and our family was one of those. And they were all farmers. That's what they did in Italy. So they came to the United States. They actually came through the port of New Orleans, and they were all farmers, or as they call themselves, croppers. The reason I even bring that up is because I didn't realize that other people went to a grocery store to buy vegetables as a kid. Everything was grown in the garden and we had about five acres worth of garden and that took care of the whole family. You know, everyone kind of worked the garden. So everything from potatoes, sweet potatoes, tomatoes, any kind of collard greens, broccoli, cauliflower, I carry a pocket knife in my knife in my pocket every day, yet I never use it. But the reason a pocket knife was always in my pocket was I could just walk by the garden and you know pull a carrot out and you didn't have anywhere to wash. You would just scrape the dirt off and the peel and eat it. Uh, the same thing with um, turnips. I would just scrape the dirt off with the pocket knife and also sweet potatoes, which I don't encourage people to do. Now, these are all starchy foods, but that's how into vegetation we were. Mm-hmm. Besides that, my parents were school teachers. They had four boys, so they couldn't afford, you know, to buy meat in the grocery store. They would share a cow with the neighbor. Mm-hmm. So we would get a half a cow twice a year, something like that. And so there was a lot of red meat. My mom's family, they were not farmers. They were fishermen and they, everything was fish. So every nighttime meal was either fish or red meat with tons of vegetables. People think Italians sit around and eat lasagna and eat pasta all day and the whole thing. You come from an Italian background. I come from an Italian background. Pasta was considered a Sunday meal and it was kind of a fun meal. You know, it's like, hey, we get to have pasta today or it could be lasagna or whatever it is. You know, And you said organ meat. I can't stand liver. I have to force myself to eat liver. I take liver tablets. I do the cubing of liver. I do everything not to have to eat liver. And I I don't want to hear anyone tell me, oh, yeah, if I made it for you, I know how to smother it. No, you don't. It's still liver to me. But, yeah, it's very important.
0: It definitely is. And I hope my mother's listening to this. My mom insisted that my brother and I loved liver growing up because she would make it with bacon. And I always remind her mom, we didn't love the liver, we ate the bacon, and then we complained about having to eat liver. And that was, you know, a mainstay of our existence. And I always say that I'm so very grateful that I had those experiences. My grandparents had this incredible garden. I mean, I can still smell it if I think about it. And they love to cook. And so I always say, you know, for me, that Italian background was really focused on food quality. And it was certainly focused on the togetherness of meals, like sitting down for a meal and, Sunday, you know, meals, it was, you know, my stepfather always called his pasta sauce gravy. That's oftentimes I I remind people, depending on where we've grown up, uh, sauce was called gravy and, you know, he had a gnocchi board and he and one of his buddies, they would roll gnocchi in our kitchen. And I often remind them that was most definitely not something we were doing every night. So it sounds like that definitely provided an appreciation for you, you know, growing up, recognizing the hard work of having accessible vegetables in your backyard as opposed to going to a grocery store, which I think for most, if not all of us, that is where we go or the farmer's market. We're not necessarily having the ability to grow our own fruits and vegetables. So was it interesting for you as you were making these associations with, you know, when you changed your diet and you're eating more starchy carbohydrates, that your body was changing, even though you were still exercising. And at that time, did you pivot and and go back to eating that more protein and fat focused philosophy? And was that something that you then brought to your clients, you know, when you eventually transitioned into being out on the West coast, was that really the focus of your work or was it more focused on the actual physical exercise? Did you provide the nutrition piece as well?
1: I couldn't go back to it right away. I started making some changes I went to beans more because beans are cheap. You could buy a big bag of beans and cook them up. And I would buy tuna fish when it was on sale. Mm-hmm. There were some companies, I don't know if people remember this, but they would put yellow labels on them with black writing and it would just say tuna you know, or beans. It was, um, I don't know if it was government subsidized food or it was called, what was it called? Generic branding or whatever
0: hmm like a new brand.
1: They don't do that anymore, right?
0: I don't think so. I, I think the labeling laws are a bit more strict. I think they have to be more, well, they should be more forthcoming as far as I know. Yeah,
1: I was buying <laughs> cans of stuff, that yellow label that said tuna on it. <laughs> and sure enough, there was tuna in there. I don't know if it was any better or any worse than chicken of the sea, but I was affording whatever I could afford. And around that time, my training business started taking off. Mm-hmm. And this is before... Training was a thing in this country. You didn't hear of training. Not every soccer mom became a trainer. Mm -hmm. And down in New Orleans, I was the only guy. As a matter of fact, there were so few of us in the country that back then, Shape Magazine came from L.A. and did a whole story on me back in 83, 84, 85, somewhere around there. Because they couldn't understand this newfangled thing that was going on. Jake was in Hollywood. I was in New Orleans. There was a guy in New York. There was like five of us in the country. Doing what we were doing. And they were like, So you're going to people's homes. Yes. And they accept you. Going- <laughs> yes. And I remember the people who worked for these people up and down St. Charles Avenue, the chefs and the maids and the whole thing. And the guy working in the yard, I knew them all, right? Because I would say hi to them. And they would say, Wait a minute. Let me get this straight. You get paid to make them work. And I would go, Yeah. And they pay you for that. Yeah. You're sitting there drinking coffee. <laughs> telling them what to do and you get paid. I'm going, yeah, that's the gig. And nobody understood it, including me. I did not think that the training thing would go on for me for as many years. It went for like 35 years. Wow. Right. But I did everything I could in New Orleans. At the time I was doing NBC affiliate, WDSU would have me on to do, you know, three to five minute things on the different shows. The competing station would also have me on Channel 4, WWL, which is, I think was the ABC affiliate, I started my own radio show that came on Wednesday afternoons. It was very popular that they also put it on Saturday. So it was twice a week. It was called Talking Fitness on a different network. And I was doing everything I could. And that kind of led to people going, well, you should be out in L.A. You know, you're not a big enough market. Plus, the weather was nice in L.A. I was into cycling so big at the time. I was like, oh, my God, I love being on a bike. And it rains all the time in you all. So mm-hmm. I was like, well, the weather's nicer. It's warm year round. And maybe I can. The big impetus of me moving there in 91 was that I saw that kids were getting fatter. I was working at Newman School. Uh, Newman School, think of, um, it's just the most expensive school in New Orleans. You know, it's where Archie Manning's kids went. Mm -hmm. You know, every politician's kids went there. The kids drove Porsche 911s to school. I'm not making it. It's that kind of school, old oil money, you know, that kind of deal. And I was the strength and conditioning coach there on top of what everything else I was doing. And I saw kids getting fatter and fatter and fatter. Obviously, not the Manning kids. They went on to win Super Bowls. But I saw this problem going on. So when I got to L.A., I marched right into Disney. I marched right into Nickelodeon. And they took meetings with me. And I said, listen, child obesity is on the rise. Do you have statistics? No. I was a school teacher. I'm telling you this is on the rise and is getting worse. Well, Vinny, we have statistics right here. And we see that what you're saying is correct. What do you suggest we do? I said, okay, I could do some children's programming. We'll talk about exercise. We'll get some young Olympic athletes to come on and I would interview them and we'll do all this stuff. And they're going, yeah, yeah, yeah. We love it. Olympic athletes. Yeah. I know Michelle Kwan. I know. Yeah, we'll do this. Michelle Kwan wasn't around yet, but yeah, you know, they were doing all this stuff and they were all into what I was talking about. And then I would say, yeah, and we got to get them off of sugar. And then the room would just go quiet. Yeah. What are you talking about? Yeah, Coca-Cola and cereal, got to go. Fruit roll-ups, out of here. And they were like, hang on there, pal. We can't do this. We got advertisers. This ain't going to happen. And that's how I sat around L.A. for all those years. Nobody would even listen to me when I said that we need to get sugar out of these kids' mouths. Mm -hmm. Didn't want to hear it. So I just carried on doing what I did. Playboy Corporation figured me out and said, wait, This guy can get these playmates to stay thin. This is great. Playmates date actors. Actors need to stay thin. I ended up in that world. And the rest is history. I started working with the Hollywood elite based on that. Mm -hmm. But I couldn't get anything else rolling because I was going to tell people not to eat sugar. Nobody wanted to hear it.
0: It's a shame when you think about the fact that the industry has so heavily influenced people to not make the right choices, meaning, you know, from a organizational level, like Nickelodeon was all on board, Disney was all on board until they start realizing that this ultimately impacts them financially, and therefore, they're just not going to bring that content to their viewers. And yet, we now recognize and know How addictive processed sugars are, how hugely inflammatory they are. I did an an end of one experiment at my home and you know had a couple days, and this is really relevant, I promise. Had a couple days where, you know, I'm doing a lot of baking. I'm a traditional mom around the holidays. We always find healthier options or versions of things. And so I was in the kitchen with my 13-year-old and I was sampling some things. And over five days, I mean, granted, I'm in my 40s, but Over five days, even though these are paleo and largely keto type recipes, it's still junk. I gained four pounds and I'm someone that's five foot three, four pounds on me is a lot, you know, normally under 120 pounds. And so I have a scale in my house and my husband's an engineer. And I literally said to him, this was four days of baking and eating a couple cookies here and there. I gained four pounds. Ignites Metabolism Mighty Maca is a superfood drink mix full of 30 plus natural ingredients and it was formulated by Dr. Anna Kabeka during her healing journey. Mighty Maca Plus ingredients, which include nourishing ingredients like organic maca powder, turmeric, quercetin, broccoli, parsley, trans resveratrol, pomegranate extract, and more, were carefully selected for immune support, to sustain energy, provide mental clarity and improve recovery. It also tastes delicious. It supports healthy detoxification and alkalinity in the body balances hormones, fights free radicals and neutralizes lactic acid all while increasing your energy and vitality. It helps improve your digestion and reignites your libido. It's a powerful superfood drink mix. That needs to be part of your daily routine. And Dr. Anna is offering my listeners 10% off your first purchase by using the link dranna slash Cynthia. That's 10% off your first per that's 10 off your first purchase by using the link dranna.com slash Cynthia. It's delicious and nutritious. Just to give you some sense of how inflammatory sugars are and yet we're it's infiltrating every opportunity, you know, granted, probably with COVID social distancing, probably not as much outside the home, but every drink, every condiment, all of our processed foods have either got high fructose corn syrup or some derivation of sugar, which there's like 50 different names. And so how interesting that these larger organizations were on board with everything you were saying until it was like, wah, wah, wah.
1: They weren't interested in hearing,
0: you know, the pushback about sugar.
1: I think I can add that to your show. Let's see here. we can do this. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Wait, did that come through on your end? Yes, it did.
1: Okay. I'll take care of your show for you. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> if I say something cute, <laughs> uh, love it. We could do it, it all. put <laughs> up to your show from my end.
0: I appreciate uh, that.
1: Yeah. You know, we're recording this on Christmas Eve. And, you know, which shows that we both have passion for the subject. Most people are sitting around making eggnog today and it's pouring with rain here. And I think you're north of me. is probably pouring with rain where you are.
0: It is indeed.
1: And, you know, most people would be hunkering down with some eggnog and, and eating cookies and the whole thing. And my wife is very traditional. She's from England and she makes all of this incredible English pastry and all this stuff. And we don't even pretend to make it. Mm-hmm. because I believe in, you know, it doesn't matter what you eat between Christmas and new year's. It only matters what you eat between new year's and Christmas. So I'm not going to eat around something that would normally be really tasty. And I got to be honest with you the past three or four days. Every time I come back in a house from a run or a bike ride or whatever, it's warm and it smells incredible, mm-hmm. but I haven't tasted anything yet. Yeah. You know, I will, it might be tonight. It'll probably be tomorrow because we're going to have the big Christmas meal tomorrow evening. And then, you know, I'm sure she made something that I'm going to really enjoy. But I really do watch myself, Mm -hmm. not because I'm worried about four pounds. I have football injuries. I have a little traction machine down here. I got all these injuries to take care of. I feel 100% better when I'm sugar-free completely, when I'm in ketosis. I know as soon as I eat something, I'm going to enjoy it for five minutes, but I'm going to wake up sometime in the middle of the night with pain. Mm-hmm. And you got to ask yourself, is that worth it? But it's worth it for me to see a smile on her face and to enjoy it in a moment. my daughter's here and the whole thing, all of that is worth it to me to have a half a day of, Oh, now I feel like crap. Now my stomach, Oh, you know, everything is a little weird, right? But it just goes to show you just how much of a chemical this stuff is that we don't need it. It's a foreign object to our bodies. And most people don't understand that, Cynthia. And here's why. It's kind of like, let's take alcohol, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: right? If you're not a daily drinker, if you have one drink, you're a cheap drunk, man. You're feeling it, you're loopy. But if you have a couple of drinks every day, you would have to have double that to feel the same pain. Mm -hmm. Well, we all know that alcohol is poison to the body, right? But we do it knowing what's coming behind it. Sugar is poison to the body, but if you're eating it every day, we get used to it. doesn't make it right. It's still wrong, but we do it.
0: Absolutely. And for anyone that's listening, I think it's always important for me to be transparent. And this is why I largely don't eat processed sugars because I don't feel good. Although I don't have football injuries, I have a nagging plantar fasciitis. And what's fascinating Mm. to me, I've had more foot pain over those days when I was eating sugar and it didn't occur to me till last night, I was like, why is my foot bothering me so much? And it's because it provokes all this inflammation in our bodies, not to mention the fact that, you know, it puts our hormones on a bit of a roller coaster. And, you know, more often than not, when I'm talking about macros, and I love that this is my segue into your statement about ketone bodies are the fourth macro. So we're talking about protein and fat and carbohydrates and how critical the first two are. And you mentioned ketone bodies, and this is a nice segue into what I believe to be a really powerful way to fuel our bodies the most efficiently and really tap into fat as a fuel source as opposed to sugars, which is what most of us that are listening, maybe not all all of my listeners, but most of us that are listening, if you're eating a standard American diet, you're not utilizing those fat stores and you're really using carbohydrates and sugar as your fuel source, which is not efficient and provokes a whole constellation of hormonal issues. But let's kind of pivot and talk a little bit about macros. And I know for you, this is an area of interest of yours in particular. And I know that you're very fat focused, which I love. It really aligns itself with my own philosophy about recommending how and when and where to eat. So where did you, or when did you kind of come to the realization that you know, being in ketosis is really a, an important tool for harnessing, you know, what's best in our bodies in terms of, you know, trying to remain slim and trim or, you know, whatever you're really focusing on. If you're out trying to prepare someone for a role in you know, on TV or a movie, obviously it may be getting, making their muscles bigger. So they're, you know, in a, a stage of growth, but for those people that are looking to maintain and kind of not buy into these limiting beliefs about your ex age. So you have to just accept that it's normal at 45 years old, that you're going to gain 10 pounds. And that's just the way things are just recognizing the way that our bodies are really designed to thrive.
1: You know, the first clue came in 1981. I was in one of my uh, classes. I can't remember which class it was, but the professor said that you know we were talking about macros, and the professor said, you know, fat is our body's preferred energy source. Mm -hmm. Body wants to burn. As a matter of fact, he he went on and on about the reason we can store fat is that if you're stuck in a famine or you're caught out on a glacier somewhere, your body will start using its own fat. That's why we can only store fat. And, you know, he goes, so fat is what your body, that's your energy. So a very young Vinny wrote down fat is energy. (laughs) And then several weeks later, he was, we were talking about something and the professor said, you know, sugar is fast energy. and, And if you're running or if you're doing any kind of prolonged exercise, your body just burns sugar. So I raised my hand and I said, back on the 25th, you were talking about fat being the preferred fuel. Now you're saying sugar, which one's going to be on the test? And he, just like with most professors, they, they all got an ass full of me right away because I was asking real questions. They didn't like that. So he said, well, it's sugar. And I said, but you emphatically, you said, if we're on a glacier or if we're stuck in famine and fat and our body can only store fat. And he goes, well, your body can store sugar too. And I said, how? And he goes in the liver and in your blood and a little bit in your muscles. And he goes, as a matter of fact, it's what we use for short-term energy. I said, so, okay, short-term energy. Okay. But what happens when we run out of sugar? He goes, well, you need to take in more sugar. And I said, what if I'm out on that glacier? Professors hated me, right?
0: Challenged them.
1: Right. And he was like, well, yeah, then the fat would kick in. And I said, well, why can't the fat just kick in? And he didn't really have an answer. And I didn't have an an answer. I was just asking the question. But it's that curiosity that we're talking about. And, you know, after, you know, paying attention to, you know, being in the lab at Tulane, when we were in the lab, it was like a Gatorade commercial. You know, we had people, we would take the, you know, members from the track team and we would have all of the EKG stuff up to them and we would collect their gas, you know, the thing in their mouth and we put them on a treadmill and we would just run the crap out of them. We'd run them in the top end of zone four, and we're sitting there pricking their fingers to, you know, to get the blood measurements and the whole thing. We had to do all those labs. And I've told the story at nauseum, but it makes a lot of sense. I was having uh, lunch one day sitting out on the park bench with this girl, Linda, Linda Weil. She's still a PT, I think, somewhere around Duke. And after I ate my sandwich and she ate her sandwich, we had just come out of the lab. She handed me a, a bag of M&Ms that she had taken a hit off of. Now, if you remember, bags of M&Ms used to be about three or four inches high. It wasn't like the supersized bag. It was just like a little, little bit of chocolate, just enough to make you enjoy it, right? She pours a few out in her hand, and I pour a few out in my hand, and I, I eat them. turn the bag over, and I'm looking at it, and I went, huh, and Linda didn't pick up my hint, so I went, ha, huh. and she goes, all right, what's wrong? That's what nerds do. I said, this little tiny bag of M&Ms have 178 calories in it. And she goes, yeah, so? I said, okay. We just had a track star almost puking his guts out in zone four for 20 minutes in that lab. She goes, yeah? I said, he didn't get to 178 calories. We measured his calories. We measured his expenditure. He was just under that. She goes, okay, okay. I said, okay, we cannot run off a bad diet. They're telling us calorie in, calorie out. This is a bag of M&Ms. We just had a sandwich. I had breakfast this morning. I'm going to eat dinner. And they're telling us we can run off a bad diet. We can't even get rid of a bag of M&Ms with exercise. And this is all sugar. On top of that is sugar. Your body will never get to its fat if it's burning sugar. And that was the beginning of my thought pattern on that whole thing. That was probably 1984. And I was already down my weight loss journey because I was already trying to figure out how to lose weight. That's why everything I looked at became something to me. I didn't understand ketone bodies back then. It wasn't until later on. And as a matter of fact, if you read my book, Fitness Confidential, I was loath to use the word ketogenic in it. Now let's go back 10 years, Cynthia, 10 years ago, keto as a term did not exist. It didn't. The ketogenic diet existed, and you were considered a kook if you put someone on it, even though it was recommended for people with epilepsy back in the 1920s. That was the cure. I was loath to use that word in my book. And when I was writing it before I mentioned Dean Laurie, I said to him, we shall never put the word ketogenic in this book. And he said, why? And I said, because I will be considered a kook. People are gonna going to think it's ketoacidosis. You're in the hospital situation. You know exactly what I'm talking about, right? They're gonna say it's ketoacidosis and I'm trying to kill people. So we're not gonna put the word. That's why I started calling it no sugars, no grains, NSNG. I had to come up with a different term for dietary ketosis or low carb. I couldn't say ketogenic. Now, had I known the word ketogenic would have become what it is now, I would have tried to get a registered trademark on that, right? but I'm glad it's out there, but now it's bastardized in a different way because we're telling people you can buy keto foods that are not keto. And I know this is not exactly the question you asked, but it's the answer I'm giving. You know, eating allulose around the clock is not keto. Eating erythritol is not keto. Having, um, telling someone that you can uh, subtract the fiber from the rest of sugar to get it down to a low carb food is not keto. Keto is eating fish. Is eating red meat, Is eating eggs, Is eating cheese, it's eating butter, it's olive oil. These are keto foods. It's coconut oil, right? It's keeping your carbs under 20 carbs per day total. That's keto. And not everyone has to be in keto. If you're not metabolically broken, you could just be low carb. NSNG is just low carb. It's not exactly keto. You could do it within ketosis or you could do it outside of ketosis. It doesn't have to be both. I know that was a big roundabout, but I wanted to get that answer.
0: No, no. The irony is you answered some of the questions when I was on Twitter yesterday, and I mentioned that we were going to be connecting. You actually tangentially answered some of the people that were interacting with the tweet, some of their own questions. And so do you think that it's the focus on so many processed foods that really drives these keto bars and paleo bars and low-carb bars? Because I was going through, for full disclosure... We do have bars in my house. I have a very athletic spouse. I've got athletic teenage boys. And so we always have something that they can grab and go. Obviously, we're not doing a lot of grabbing and going. We're doing a lot of eating at home. But what was interesting to me, much to your point about the net carbs, I hear a lot of people, a lot of fit pros on social media, especially Instagram, and they'll start you know, going through how to calculate your net carbs. And it brings up such a good point Because sometimes people say, okay, it's 30 grams of carbs, but you know, you take the fiber out, you take this out and really you're only consuming seven grams. So do you think it's the focus on processed foods that's the driving some of the marketing schemes so that people perceive that they're not really consuming as many carbs as they are?
1: It's driving, not some of, it's driving most of, you know, Robin Switzer is a close friend. I feel like she's a bit of a sister. She's not the original brain, but she's the reason that low-carb Austin, what do they call it, Ketocon. Mm -hmm. Ketocon happens because of that woman. Mm -hmm. And I was at Ketocon. I showed a piece of the movie there, and I was one of the keynote speakers, not this year, but last year, because it didn't happen this year. And I also had a booth because I own a vitamin company, purevitaminclub.com, shameless plug. So I had a booth there. And of course, my booth was popular because everyone wanted to get their book signed or take the photo and all this kind of stuff. But when I wasn't doing that, I walked around the convention, you know, and they had every bar, you name it, it was there. Everybody wants to be at KetoCon. It's kind of like the Woodstock of the whole keto movement. And I'm walking around and and of course, everybody wants me to taste their product because they're hoping I'm going to mention it on a podcast that gets a million downloads. <laughs> I can't go around tasting erythritol all day or you know or allulose because you know how that ends up. Well, one day <laughs> I walked into the bathroom and all the urinals were being used, all both of them, so I walked into one of the stalls and I walked in and it looked like a Jackson pollock I mean it was <laughs> it, it was crap all over the toilet, so I'm oh geez, so I walked into the next one. That one was splattered with diarrhea. I walked into the third one. All three are splattered with diarrhea. And I'm like, that's a lot of sick. Oh, wait a minute. Mm-hmm. I'm looking at allulose, I'm looking at erythritol. I'm looking at all of these fake sugars. I'm looking at monk fruit. Too much of all of it. When your body doesn't want something, it gets rid of it. And it gets rid of it quick. Yeah. Right. I made it a point the next day because I know they swab those toilets out every night went back in there, kicked all those stalls open. And again, Jackson Pollock made his appearance again. They were all splattered, right? This is what happens when you eat fake food. Mm-hmm. It doesn't work at all. So I started looking around and I wanted to make something for people on the go, personally. And you know, I own a vitamin company, I own a coffee company. I understand how to sell products that work. So I sat around and went, How do you get something sweet that doesn't have anything in it? How do you do it? How do you do it? How do you do it? And then I went, wait a minute. You don't do it. You make it savory. Mm -hmm. So I took almonds. I took almond butter. I took coconut oil. I put some fresh vanilla in it because vanilla just makes everything taste better. And then I took one of my products from my vitamin company. I took my ultra salt and sprinkled one of them in there and I mixed it up. I had ultra fat. Now you have a high fat product and it tastes savory. And oh, what's in it? It's Ultrasalt, which is the world's best electrolyte, right? It's a pH balanced electrolyte that I made myself. And next thing you know, I'm investing in my own company making Ultrafat. And was the world ready for it? Yes, because within the first, the company came out in mid-July. So we're almost at half a year. We didn't catch up on sales for the first four months. We thought we were ready for an onslaught. Mm -hmm. We had tens of thousands of these things ready to go. What we didn't realize was more than that, we're ready for a real product to come out, an on-the-go product, right? We spent all of our first three months just constantly writing letters to people. We know you paid for this three weeks ago, and legally we can't keep your money. I will be more than happy. Everyone stayed and waited until we caught up. And now that product is like blown up it's completely blown up because we were able to make a product a keto friendly product, a vegan product that's real that doesn't have to taste like anything except itself.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it works. So I need to get your husband and your your kids some of this product. It's amazing. Go check it out folks, it's called Ultrafat. Ultrafat is at nsngfoods.com. So it can be done. But sitting around counting, you know, net carbs taking away fiber and everything else. Good luck with that. As I said, at the beginning of this podcast, you can't eat around the bad diet. Can't you have to go right in.
0: And I think it's so important. And, and I love that you kind of touch on the savory because the one thing that I've come to find out the last probably two years is I have started becoming really enamored with salt. We were told for years and years and years that this iodized salt is bad for you and it causes hypertension and all these other issues and I'm talking about, you know, sea salt or kosher salt makes everything taste better. Like I've been dairy free for a while. I've been grain free. I've been gluten free for a long time. And I've just discovered the beauty of salting my food properly. I was actually telling my husband, I grew up with a mom that didn't salt anything, even though she was Italian, even though she was a really good cook, she salted nothing. And it's almost like your taste buds just completely explode when you have something that's properly salted. So I love that you were able to put together a clean option for people, because I think realistically, and I'm all about being a realist, people do want things that are portable, but they want them to be healthy. And I think there's this misconception that if it has a particular label, whether it's vegan, keto, paleo, primal, et cetera, that in and of itself makes the product healthy. And more often than not, it does not. Now, I would love for you to kind of talk a little bit about, I know that you've got your new movie is going to be released in like a week and a half. Can you yeah. tell us what to expect with fat too? And, and for anyone that hasn't watched your first documentary, it's one of my favorites. It's one that I recommend to my patients with some frequency and it has some of like the biggest names in the low carb, ketogenic, journalistic focused community. Tell us a little bit about this next variation of the documentary.
1: Yeah, you know, when it all started, everybody, every time a vegan propaganda movie would come out like Forks Over Knives or
0: Game Changers,
1: Game Changers, What the Health, you know, all of them, they're lying. You know, they're just old-faced lies. I mean, to say that eating one egg a week will cause type 2 diabetes, nothing can be further from the truth. You know, everything in Game Changers was a complete lie.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: The man they were calling the strongest man in the world has never come close to winning that competition. Didn't stop them from saying he was the strongest man in the world. You know, is he a very strong man? Yes, he is stronger than me. And I got a feeling he's stronger than you. (laughs) But is he the strongest man in the world? No, not by a long shot, Mm -hmm. not even close. And everyone else, you know, talking about all these professional athletes, if they told the real story, most of them ended their careers by becoming vegan. Mm -hmm. They just don't tell you the truth. What the health, I love at the beginning of that movie, how Kip, our fearless leader in that movie. Kip goes, um, yeah, bro. He's one of those bro dudes. Yeah, bro. I was just like, I was asking myself a question. Like, I wonder what's the healthiest diet out there. And then I heard this word vegan and I was like, what's this vegan thing? Hey, Kip, you did a movie called Cowspiracy. (laughs) You talked about vegan in that movie and all of a sudden you're sitting around scratching your ass wondering what vegan is. (laughs) That's a lie. And then we go from that lie to every other lie in the movie. They literally had a guy in the movie saying that eating dairy products is tantamount to being institutionalized racism. How they got to that, I will never know. Institutional racism by eating dairy. Thank you, movie. Thank you. I'm all ears. Tell me how that happens.
0: Tell me the connection.
1: You know, I went out with my black friend and we both had milkshakes. You know, we were enjoying dairy together. Okay. Racism. I don't know. Anyway, I went off on a tangent. So when everyone says to me, do the movie and you tell the lies in the opposite direction. And I said, no, that won't do. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do something that's just going to become, you know, not just lies, but, you know, it's kind of like when you're on Twitter and someone runs out of stuff. They just start name calling. I'm not going to do that. Mm -hmm if I'm going to do a movie, I'm just going to tell the truth. And, you know, my father was a history professor. And I said, you know, history always tells the truth. Mm -hmm.
0: Today's podcast is sponsored by NutriSense. It combines cutting edge technology and human expertise. So you can see how your body responds to different types of nutrition, stress, even though I am metabolically healthy, I find the insights to be particularly helpful to tailor my lifestyle changes to my blood sugar. Visit NutriSense.io EWP and use the code EWP. slash Cynthia. That's B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com slash Cynthia and use promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off of any order. Again, that's promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off any order.
1: And as you said earlier in this podcast, everyone goes back to Ansel Keys. We pretend that history started in 1957 with Ansel Keys. But I went all the way back to the 1860s and Ellen G. White in the beginning of veganism, because if you ask most people today, they'll say veganism has been around for thousands of years, the Indian people. But no, the Indian people are not vegans at all. They're vegetarians Mm -hmm. for the most part. They don't eat cow and they do eat eggs. They do eat cheese. Mm -hmm. They do eat goat. They eat pig. They eat all of it. They eat fish. They just don't eat cow. That does not make you a vegan, right? And they eat a lot of vegetables. And the reason they don't eat more meat, because it's, a, you know, most of the country is impoverished. Mm-hmm. They eat what they can. I was in India. I was there. I saw it. I was on the ground for three weeks. I saw what they do. I talked at hospitals. I went around this country. I went to universities. I talked to these people. There's a reason why they eat the way they do. Now, the cowl is sacred to them, mm-hmm. but other than that, right? So, why not start the movie during where actual veganism started with a crazy woman named Ellen G. White? Now, Cynthia, if you woke up tomorrow morning and you said to your husband and kids, I saw God last night in my sleep, they would wrap you up in a warm blanket and take you to a rubber room and you would be in on a 5150. They would have to figure out what happened, but not Ellen G. White. She said she saw God. And instead of studying this woman and trying to get her help, they said, what did God have to say? And she said, God said, you can't eat anything with a face. There started modern day veganism. And the kid typing up these reports was a 14 year old John Kellogg, who became Dr. Kellogg, who started a flake company to get people to stop eating meat, because if you didn't eat meat, you weren't going to masturbate. That's how veganism started. You want the truth? There it is. And I didn't have to go make up that truth. That's the facts. The whole 90 minutes of the first movie shows you the history from then through Ansel Keys, through the McGovern, through the pyramid, all the way up to modern day, right? We went through all the presidents from, we went from Kennedy all the way through Trump, showing all of these presidents saying they're going to do something about the obesity epidemic and did nothing, right? Because you can't, you can't do anything when, The food industry, the lobbyist of the food industry is giving you so much money. That's how the first movie ends. The second movie was shot simultaneously with the first movie, yet there were only two people in the room that knew that we were shooting two movies, me and Peter Pardini. When Nina Teicholz was sitting there and we're asking her these questions, and then all of a sudden we start shifting and asking those questions, they all kind of looked at me crazy and said, well, Vinny just doesn't know how to interview people what I was doing was interviewing him for my second movie because I felt that if the first movie was a hit, I can do the second movie. I even shot my part for the second movie. If you remember, I did kind of a fireside chat in the first movie. In the second movie, I'm sitting at a different screen in a different shirt. I was like, share. I just took off one costume and put on <laughs> another one. So that's what I did because I knew I couldn't get a film crew to show, I wouldn't have the money to do it. Mm -hmm. so since i had the money given to me by these good people through we got a quarter of a million dollars through crowdfunding i said they think i'm giving them one movie i'm giving them two so the first movie became this mega hit it's all over the world you know it's making money the money's coming back in i'm made whole again because i put a lot of my own money into it and then the pandemic hit Mm -hmm. and everyone's sitting around and i'm sitting around and i said hey let me give Peter Pardini a call and see if we could do the second movie. And Peter said, I would love to, but I'm working on other projects. I can't. He was under deadlines. And I said, Peter, would you mind if I did it without you? And he said, go right ahead. So I did the second movie without Peter. He was a great lending ear. Whenever I needed an ear, I can call him up and say, Peter, I'm stuck here. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. The guy was a champion. You know, he gets no credit on this movie, but I got to give him credit here. He was a champion at helping me whenever he could. I did not have confidence and faith in myself. I was going to put this movie out by myself, just throw it up on YouTube, charge a couple of bucks, try to get my money back. I had to pay an editor. I had to pay this, I had to pay that. But I went to Gravitas. I went to the Gallagher brothers and I said, listen, I'm doing this movie. I don't want you guys to think I'm undercutting you, but I'm putting out, the sequel to Fat, a documentary. And Brendan Gallagher said, that's great, love it, but can I see it? Maybe I can give you some advice. I went, absolutely. The president of Gravitas? Absolutely. So I sent him the movie at three o'clock one afternoon. He's on the East Coast also. At six o'clock, my phone is ringing off the hook. I'm doing a podcast and my phone keeps buzzing. And when the podcast was over with, I grabbed the phone and it's Brendan Gallagher. And he says, we have to have this movie. I said, oh, come on, bro. He goes, no, no, no. This is better than the, do you realize your movie was the best movie, the best-selling movie of all time, Ravitas. Yeah, you guys keep telling me that. He goes, this movie will beat it. This is a better movie. I said, oh, come on, Peter, you're blowing smoke. He goes, no, no, better movie. We have to have it. And I said, I'm not interested. He literally cut a better deal with me, which I don't think you, you know this, but distribution and Hollywood guys don't do that. I kept telling him no, and he they had to have it. They cut a better deal with me, more favorable terms on my end. They're doing the same rollout they did with the first movie. They can't wait for people to see this movie. It's up for pre-sales right now, and it's killing it in pre-sales. I know I'm bragging about something that I did, but I couldn't believe that they wanted to do with this movie because I didn't have confidence in myself, because I didn't have a rock star like a Peter Pardini breathing on this thing, but... I learned a lot from Peter, and I was able to direct it and figure it out. And we go deep down the vegan rabbit hole on this movie. You know, Walter Willett, you're not safe. Harvard, you're not safe. McDougal, not safe. We're coming after all of you. And you got a big smile on your face. You're going to smile even more when you learn. I've kept this pocket knife in my hand the whole show since I grabbed it. It reminds me of my childhood. Mm -hmm. I'm actually, I've written the script for the third movie in the series. So if you think we went deep on number two, on number three next year, it'll be out. If I have anything to say, if this movie makes enough money for me to keep doing movies, you see, I'm not getting rich in these movies, Cynthia. I'm hoping to keep making enough money to make another movie. That's all I'm doing here. So I'm planning on at least starting to shoot this movie sometime this year and put it out by the end of the year. I know I can do it. Everyone goes out and buys this movie. And I can continue doing what I'm doing because these movies will make a difference. It's the only fight we have against this whole vegan propaganda thing.
0: Well, I think it's incredibly exciting. And I really believe that when we're in true alignment with where we're supposed to be and time and place, those kinds of opportunities will avail themselves. You know, having the opportunity to allow for, you know, this company to come in and, and, provide so much support for your second film or second documentary. And honestly, after watching the first one, I kept thinking like what's next because there's so much more to the story than just that one documentary. Now I want to pivot just one more time. Uh, One of the questions that came up when I mentioned that we were going to connect today was what are your feelings about censorship? And actually when I had Abel James on a few months ago, He and I had a whole conversation, you know, between social media and feeling like a lot of not only healthcare providers, but people in the health and wellness space feeling that their opinions are largely being regulated by, you know, big pharma, by big business. You know, what are your thoughts and have you felt censored either in your podcasting or on social media? Are you not able to express your opinions without feelings of retribution or blowback or, You know, even I know Rob Wolf and I were talking about this as well. You know, a lot of people are leaving certain social media platforms because, you know, all of their posts and their shares are really being suppressed and are not as visible to their followers. I think Abel
1: and I started at around the same time, you know, and we supported each other, you know, ten years ago in this podcast space. And I got to meet, you know, we met several times, we'd meet at conventions and whatever. We were both up for like podcast of the year in Vegas. That was the first time we met. He was still dating his lovely wife at that time. And we were both kind of up and comers back then. It was like nine years ago when we went to that. So, and I did Abel's show a bunch back then. He would come on my show. We were both doing gangbusters. I put a book out that raised my awareness. Abel put a book out that raised his awareness. And then Abel did the fatal thing of becoming too popular. He ended up on television on a television show. Not only that, but his position on that show did really well. He showed that a low carb diet works really well. That was Abel's biggest mistake is getting too popular. And then the next thing you know, his numbers are like decreasing on Twitter and this and that. And he was calling me, going, Is this happening to you? And I'm like, No, no it seems to be growing for me. And he's like, Man, they're coming after me left and right. And I started thinking, Is Abel just is he one of these conspiracy theory guys? or what But it was real because I watched my Twitter go up, right? You know, I've never bought a Twitter follower or whatever. It went from 1,000, 2,000, 10,000, 15, 20, 30. And when it got to about 30,000, it leveled off and stopped. Okay, maybe my popularity stopped. Well, my book still sells like hotcakes is nine years old. People are still buying it. We get a million downloads a month. People are still listening. I put out the most popular movie of last year on Gravitas. I beat Free Solo on iTunes for a month. That one won an Oscar. I stayed ahead of him for a month. Okay, everything else is getting bigger, but my Twitter stops. It just levels off at like thirty-five thousand, or forty. I don't even know where it is. My Instagram only started out about a year ago. That was like a meteoric rise, and then all of a sudden it went. One day, a thousand next day, 5,000, 10,000, 20,000 levels off. And we look at the back end of that. And it's like, they're pulling people away from me. People are coming in hundreds a day, but they're pulling hundreds away. So for everyone I put in, they're taking people away. Is that a coincidence? I don't know. Tell me if this is a coincidence. Most mornings I used to wake up. It would take me about an hour and a half to answer all my tweets overnight. Some mornings I get up and I work for an hour and a half. Some mornings I wake up and there's two tweets. Mm -hmm. Is that a coincidence when you go from 150 tweets to two or did something happen? I can see going from 150 to 95, Mm -hmm. right? Is that a coincidence? Is it a coincidence when one day you, someone calls you and says, Hey, your Wikipedia page was pulled down, right? Pulled down. And when we contacted the person who pulled it down, he said, my attorney contacted the guy. He said, we can't substantiate anything on this profile. Really? No. You can't substanti- You can't go and see that I have a book. You can't go and see that I have a movie. You can't go and see that I have a podcast. None of that could be substantiated. As a matter of fact, my wife, who's a celebrity, she's an actor. They even removed me from hers, saying that we're not even a couple. They couldn't substantiate that. Would you like to walk in my bedroom? Can we substantiate it that way? <laughs> oh, what would you like us to do to prove... Not only that, on the same day that mine was pulled down, Malcolm Kendrick, the great Malcolm Kendrick, I was interviewing him that day. His was pulled down, too. And we both ended up on the same day on something called Rational Wiki, where they're calling us whack jobs. Now, am I a conspiracy theorist? No. Am I a guy who's thinking, oh, Vinny, come on, that's just you? These are real things happening. We've been trying to get me verified on Twitter for five years. If I got my assistant here, she would put a gun to her head and blow her head off with the answers we get back from Twitter as to why I can't be uh, verified, right? You've done a couple of TED Talks. Mm -hmm. I was supposed to do a TED Talk. They canceled me at the last minute. No way. Yes, ma'am. I was scheduled to go on Dr. Oz's show. The tickets were bought by Oz. The date was set to go on Oz to talk about the movie. It was after the movie became a big hit. It was all set ready to go. I was leaving on a Sunday to be on the show on Monday. His producer called me on the Saturday. I was at the gym and he goes, uh, Hey, we had to bump you. And as soon as I heard that, I went, Oh, you're bumping me. Yeah. Yeah. Something, you know, we have to pull something else in there. I said, okay, well, what's the new date? And he goes, Oh, we're going to have to get back to you. Oh, you don't have a date. You're bumping me. Shouldn't we have a date? Uh, we'll get back to you. I still haven't heard from him. That was a year ago. So are we being discriminated against? You tell me.
0: It's really hard to believe that we're not, we're in a position in society now where there's so much suppression of information and it disallows people from being able to come to their own conclusions. You know, if we're not getting objective information or even both sides of the situation as it pertains to macros, nutrition, dogma, I'm a big proponent of dispelling outdated dogma. And I recognize how critical it can be but we're not talking about something like a vaccine which i know can be incredibly controversial you're talking about dogma and you're talking about nutrition and you're talking about objective information that can be validated and i find that incredibly disturbing from you know just a civil liberties perspective and hopefully things will come full circle and there won't be influences that are creating you know, this lack of opportunities to spread the information. And I have to be grateful in this instance that you are able to, you know, get the documentary and film up on iTunes so that it can be shared with people. You don't have to go through the more traditional routes to sharing movies. So what's next for you? What are you working on right now?
1: Before I say that, there's one thing I want to add to what we were just talking about. I've had a Facebook group. It's a private group. You have to be invited in. You asked to be in and we invite you in. So it's it's supposed to be a private Facebook group. Facebook has been censoring that group and threatening to pull it down for the past two weeks. This is brand new. Citing that we use words like fat. Well, everyone on there talks about fat. Mm -hmm. Bacon fat got dinged the other day, wrote bacon fat. And they're trying to get rid of us. So we're trying to find a new place to go. Now, if that group goes away, do I get upset? Well, only because... There's close to 30,000 people in the group. And I cry when I read some of these stories. I literally weep. And the reason I weep is, you know, this has changed my life. I've lost 250 pounds. They showed it before and afters. You know, it brings tears to my eyes to see these stories. Yet Facebook wants this to go away. Thanks, Facebook. You know, what are we going to do? Do I make money on that group? No, I don't make one dime. It's a free group. Guess what, Facebook? Me and those 30,000 people, we're going to go somewhere else. I might have to create my own thing. Mm -hmm. And by the way, I'm already talking to people. I'm not waiting for Facebook to cancel me. I'm already talking. I got this guy signed on, that guy signed on. Mm -hmm. We're building a platform so that we could go to Facebook and go, hey, guys, scoot over here before Facebook leaves you hanging. Mm -hmm. And by the way, that's going to be free, too. And you can say what the fuck you want. Right. Sorry for the language, but it really angers me. So when you say, what am I working on next? I'm working on that. I'm working on a place for people to be. I wrote a PDF several years ago. It's been downloaded well over 300,000 times. I'm working on updating that for the new year. It won't be out on day one. I got a lot going on. I'm finishing up the script for the next movie. I'm writing that. Takes a lot of time. And then I got to figure out how to shoot it, how to get a crew to safely shoot it. You know, with the mask and all the, you know, I'll probably have to go back to L.A. to shoot it, you know, because I can't get cameramen and crews to come here. It'd be too expensive. It's easier for me to go there. So that's going to be a lot of work. And the podcast, I do five fresh shows every week. You know, that's a full time job in itself. That's kind of what's next for me is just keep the balls in the air.
0: Well, it's really exciting. And obviously we're going to have to have you back because there were lots of other avenues we could have dove down, but I was trying to stay really committed to making sure we covered a couple very specific things. So where can listeners connect with you? I know you mentioned you have this private Facebook group. Um, Obviously you've got an incredible website that has lots of resources there. You're on Twitter, you're on Instagram. So where can they connect with you and find you?
1: I answer every question I see on Instagram every day unless uh, it's ad hominem about me killing sentient beings. I won't answer those. I answer questions every day on Instagram on uh, Twitter every day. My Instagram, I show little short videos of kind of how to this sort of thing. So yeah, that and the podcast, the fitness confidential podcast, as you mentioned, is over a million downloads a month. We do five shows. And all of those shows are different. The Monday show, might not be everyone's taste. It's a bit naughty and dirty, but it was the original show. So we keep it that way and people really enjoy it. It's the number one show we do, but it's think like Howard Stern gone wrong. I'm not funny like Howard Stern. It's a bit raunchy. The Wednesday show, there's real information. The Friday show that Cynthia will be on is a luminary show. That show is the number two show that we do. On Saturday, it's a listener call-in show. And on Sunday, we do Vinnie Sunday School, where it's all clean, no F words, no nothing. And it's for kids. It's more kid-centric. So it's five shows a week. Go check out the ones you like. If you don't like the Monday show, don't give up. Just go to a Friday show, and you'll go, oh, wait, wait, wait. This is what I want.
0: I have to laugh because my husband and I drove to Richmond on Tuesday. And in, in my typical, I'm preparing for a podcast I was listening to, several of the podcasts and my husband was definitely intrigued and actually said, I'll have to check out more of his podcasts." I think that we were listening to a Monday one. And I said, I think because I grew up in New Jersey and I'm used to, you know, Italian guys that just say it like it is. I said, this is like being at home. So it didn't bother me at all. And there's great information, lots of humor. And I think that there's something to be said in this podcasting world when people feel like they can still speak their mind because I believe that there's also this prevailing sense of feeling like you have to be completely politically correct 24 seven. And that's just not real. I would much rather people you know, speak their mind and do it in a way that, you know, facilitates some really interesting discussion. But we'll definitely we'll definitely have you back on for sure.
1: Cynthia, thanks for having me on. And thank you for doing this on Christmas Eve. You know, it's good to know that we're out there doing this even when we should be with family. So thank you.
0: Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Everyday Wellness. If you loved this episode, please leave us a rating and review. Subscribe and remember, tell a friend. And if you want to connect with us online, visit the link in the show notes. Just as you carefully choose the cut of meat or freshness of produce that you cook at home, you should carefully choose chemical-free cookware that provides a healthy and safe cooking experience. The materials in 360 cookware are safe, sustainable, and of the highest quality. Their cookware is 100% free from any toxic chemicals as the company produces quality stainless steel cookware and bakeware without added chemicals and all are manufactured in the United States. It's also the leading manufacturer that equips kitchens with cookware and bakeware that are free of all of the toxic chemicals and coatings, including PFAS, Teflon, and ceramic. And the best thing is that when used properly, the product's construction provides non-stick properties in a product that can be passed down through generations. Go to www.360cookware.com and use code Cynthia20 for 20% off your first order.